Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Mark Ojakian, the outgoing president of the Connecticut State Colleges and University System. Good morning to you, sir. Uh, Good morning. It's a pleasure to be on with you this morning. So you are officially on the job until the end of the month, correct? Correct. I am on the job through New Year's Eve, um, and then I will be retiring uh, from this position, but from state service after 41 years. Well, certainly the pandemic has been looming large over the past nine months or so. How are your 17 campuses handling the COVID crisis? Aaron, I think we're doing um, well, relatively speaking. Um, As you know, once we had to pivot in March uh, to fully online, we've been planning from day one um, on how we were going to reopen in the fall and how we were going to keep our faculty, students, um, and staff safe and allow everybody to complete the fall semester. So the governor, you know, tasked an advisory group to work out the protocols, asked me to lead the effort to reopen all of higher education in the state of Connecticut um, and the 17 institutions um, that I've been honored to serve for the past five years did did really well. Um, We pivoted uh, to online. We've had a combination of um, online and in-person classes uh, during the fall semester. Uh, The uh, university of folks um, left Uh, at Thanksgiving break, and we'll take their exams um, um, online uh, so as not to come back after Thanksgiving and repopulate the dorms. Community colleges are doing well. We've had relatively low positivity rates on our campuses, given uh, where the state is as a whole. So I think that the credit goes to all the hardworking people on the campuses and also to the students who actually paid attention. Um, I think everybody thought uh, that students would disregard the public service advice and the protocols, but for the most part, our students paid attention. Uh, They adhered to all of the safety protocols, and I couldn't be prouder of the effort uh, that uh, was undertaken on all of the campuses. Now, when it comes to the four regional universities versus the community colleges, 
the strategies must be somewhat different in combating COVID-19. The residential students uh, were uh, treated um, sort of differently in terms of public health protocols, especially those students living in the dorms. Uh, there was testing requirements, um, random testing requirements that occurred throughout the semester um, of up to 25 percent um, at one point in time um, on a weekly basis. Uh, there was a massive education campaign um, uh, to all on campus, including students. So the residential students were, were treated like, like congregate setting, uh, you know, environments. Um, the community colleges are part of the community. Um, students go back and forth from their homes. They, they go to work. They raise their children. They have their own unique set of challenges. So we had to have a different uh, set of protocols uh, for those students. Um, and by and large, um, there was a lot of self-identification that occurred in terms of uh, students testing a positive for COVID, contact tracing uh, done um, very successfully on our 12 community college uh, campuses. So there were different sets of protocols depending on if you were a residential uh, campus or a non-residential campus. In terms of the residential campuses, have they taken a bigger financial hit because of the loss of room and board revenue? Absolutely. In the spring when we had to uh, pivot to fully online and really uh, ask students to, to leave um, our campuses, we had to refund uh, students and their families um, an amount of money, I believe it was $26 million uh, for that period of time that they were not going to be able to be in the dorms and take advantage of the meal plan. Um, we saw a reduction um, of occupancy in the fall, which uh, further exacerbated uh, the financial loss um, that we uh, saw occur. Now, we, we didn't see the um, sort of enrollment decline that we thought we would at the universities. Um, so we were grateful uh, not, to, not to see that occur, but we clearly did not have the uh, number of beds occupied that we originally um, would have had occupied had there not been um, COVID. And one of the public health protocols, um, as a matter of fact, required us to um, reserve a certain amount of beds in our dorms uh, for isolation spaces for students that did test positive that had to quarantine for the for the 14 days. So we already had to reduce our capacity, but then many students decided that they were going to, you know, go part time or were going to stay home um, and take their courses online um, since they were able to do that. So while we needed to do what we needed to do to keep all of our students, faculty and staff safe, that did result in fewer students um, um, at our universities and fewer students in our dorms. Have the community colleges taken a, a bigger hit in terms of enrollment numbers? They have, as a, as a matter of fact. Um, I believe the last time um, I, I looked uh, for the fall, I believe it was about a 15 percent reduction in enrollment um, at the community colleges. And so that also has created financial challenges um, you know, on, um, on their own. And anecdotally, I think you can look at you know, why this may have occurred. 
Um, you know, at our community colleges, we have a lot of part-time students. We have, we have a lot of first-generation students who work, go to school, raise families. And I think the uncertainty around their childcare situation, around their work situation, um, around their child's uh, K through 12 schedule, which as you know, varied week by week in certain school districts. Um, I think many students decided uh, to sit out the, you know, the fall semester and see if there was any more consistency or stability in their lives generally for the fall. You know, as you know, the pandemic has disproportionately affected citizens of color, people of color, and students of color, and disproportionately affected uh, those folks living in urban settings. And so that's where we have community colleges, which are, you know, part of the integral fabric of those communities. So there was a lot of factors at play, but, but we did see about a 15% reduction um, in enrollment at our community colleges. And I would suspect that some of the students at the community colleges are probably frontline workers. You have programs in, in nursing and, and respiratory therapy, so they might be having to deal with COVID on multiple fronts. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they're not only frontline workers in terms of working in grocery stores and 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 other you know service industries that were critical during covid but as you as you just indicated they are you know frontline healthcare workers um, and so you know many of our students um, you know work 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 in laboratories work in medical settings um, they're uh, they were called on to be part of the overall covid response um, and so they might not have been able to take the, the course load that they ordinarily would have taken. Um, you know, the thing about the colleges and universities is that, is that they were called on to be part of the overall state and community response to COVID. Uh, so we had testing sites set up at our colleges and universities. Uh, we donated significant amounts of PPE from our nursing and allied health programs and ventilators to local hospitals at the beginning of the pandemic when there was a shortage of this uh, kind of equipment. Uh, we've been we've been part of helping with the the food distribution issues in our communities. Um, you know, all you have to do is turn on the TV or watch, uh, you know, watch the news um, at night and you'll see, you know, cars waiting in line for people to get food. So we've been able to be helpful in terms of that response. So I'm very proud of the overall commitment um, that our campuses had to, to continuing to serve the communities, you know, where they were located. And I think that will continue um, not only through the you know, the spring semester, but also as part of the vaccine rollout. Um, I would anticipate our colleges and universities being sites perhaps um, where the vaccine could be administered. Um, I also think that our colleges and universities and the leaders on those campuses can play a role in educating their communities about the safety and the value of taking the vaccine. Uh, so we're, we have, there's a lot of work yet to be done, but I continue to believe, to believe that the uh, colleges and universities can continue to be part of the overall response, uh, you know, to this pandemic.
Earlier in the pandemic, we heard concerns from some faculty and staff about what they felt was a a lack of testing and they were being forced to use certain online learning systems. Are you still hearing those concerns or have those been resolved? Well, I think you're always going to hear concerns, right? Nobody's going to be 100% satisfied 100% of the time. That's just human nature. But I think working with our public health uh, you know, counterparts with uh, with the local and state public health officials, and especially Commissioner Gifford, who's been an incredible partner, uh, you know, to us um, as we as we try to navigate this. You know, we followed sound science data and public health protocols, and so we tested where it was appropriate and used our resources where they were best needed to handle. Um, keeping our our colleges and universities, um, you know, safe. I think our faculty has done an incredible job of, of providing the quality, the high quality online instruction um, that I think uh, is necessary um, when you have to, uh, you know, teach fully remotely in many cases. And so, while there continues to be some, you know, small, uh, um, sort of uh, Uh, concerns around the way that we have approached this. And I expect that that will continue, you know, into the future. Uh, By and large, everybody's done an incredible job. And I think uh, we've had um, great success given where where the rest of the state and the country um, has been and continues to be right now. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Mark Ojakian, the outgoing president of the Connecticut State Colleges and Universities System, retiring from state service at the end of the month. I know you'll be somewhat watching from the sidelines, but what will the spring semester look like at colleges and universities in Connecticut? Are you hoping for increased residential capacity at the universities? I I, I think we're doing everything uh, possible to assures uh, students and their families that our our campuses, our residence halls are are safe. Um, We're following all the proper guidance. And so it's a very safe place uh, for them to be in the spring. You know, that being said, we're seeing, you know, an uptick both in the state and nationally um, in in cases. Um, And I don't anticipate that getting better following the Thanksgiving holiday and especially as we enter into the Christmas holiday. So I think there's a general um, anxiety among everybody about, you know, the the direction of of the uh, positive cases um, um, as we move forward. And so while we're doing everything possible to market ourselves continuously as a high quality, low cost, um, you know, regional option for students and their families. Um, I would anticipate that we would continue to see, um, you know, uh, short-term declines um, in, um, you know, in enrollment and in our uh, residential rates. You know, we've just submitted our budget request uh, to, um, you know, to the Office of Policy and Management in the governor's office. And one of the assumptions we made, um, and I think the board will adopt it next week, um, the Finance Committee adopted it last week, is that we will not be raising uh, tuition or the cost of room and board next year. We, we had a set schedule for this uh, spring, but we don't anticipate um, having to uh, look at tuition and fee increases next year because this is not the time 
uh, to put additional burdens on students and their families. So we're doing everything possible uh, to uh, make sure that whatever declines we have uh, are minimal and we're able to mitigate you know, the circumstances that would um, continue that uh, downward decline in the future. Now, the system faces a significant financial shortfall this fiscal year. I believe it was just shy of $70 million earlier in the year. How is it going trying to, to erase that deficit? Well, the, with, with the guidance and direction and of, the, of the Board of Regents, um, we are uh, moving uh, you know, forward to sort of mitigate that deficit. We continue to try to find areas where we can save money. As I indicated, we're not going to increase tuition and fees next year, so we will not see additional revenue opportunities uh, you know, come into our uh, system. Um, we have expenditure reduction plans in place. Um, we will continue to rely to some extent on reserves to get us through this period of time. That's a lot more difficult in, in the case of the community colleges, which already collectively um, have a very low uh, reserve um, uh, base. So we're not going to be able to uh, tap into those reserves um, very much, uh, but we continue to find places that are appropriate, uh, you know, to, you know, to cut. Just like, just like every household has had to do during the pandemic and cut their expenses, uh, we have to do the same thing. We're very hopeful that um, with hopefully the next round of, of federal relief, um, you know, discussions are are you know underway and we hope to see a federal federal relief package soon. Uh, we will be uh, part of that uh, package uh, like we were the first time and we're hopeful you know that the governor and the legislature will, will recognize um, that we need some sort of bridge support to get us through the next year or two um, in order to continue to be sustainable into the future. Um, we've made our request. We've, I've been a strong advocate up at the Capitol over the last five years to try to continue to talk about the, the value that our system provides to the state of Connecticut. And we're going to continue to advocate for that, you know, in the future. But it's not going to be easy. Um, and we're going we're gonna to have to, you know, really prioritize where we spend our money, just like every other family in the state of Connecticut has had to do. We're not only recipients of tuition and fee dollars, but we're also, you know, as I said, re recip uh, recipient of state tax dollars. And so we have to be good stewards of that tax money that we get from the citizens of Connecticut. And so, you know, we're going to have to look at how to do things differently. Uh, maybe we we don't have to do everything that we're doing now. I'm not sure. I won't be here next year. But if I was, I would encourage folks to take a look at doing things differently, um, to try to find as many efficiencies as possible. Um, you know, we're, we're in, the, in the beginning stages of collective bargaining. We, you know, had significant uh, wage increases as a result of the last CBAC agreement that we had to implement um, this past July, which accounted for $20 million of our deficit. Um, to all of our employees that are represented by collective bargaining units. So there are challenges ahead, but I have always viewed challenges as opportunities. 
um, because I think we can no longer continue to look um, at things through the same um, you know, lens. We have to do things differently. We have to be creative. We have to be bold. And you know, the status quo no longer can be an option. Is there a rough deficit figure right now that needs to be closed for the current fiscal year? I believe it's around $40 million now. Uh, it was at 70. We did some initial uh, budget reductions. We received some uh, money from uh, the state as part of the CARES um, Act where the state had a block grant. So uh, the governor gave us some money uh, to close that deficit. So I believe now it's around 40, uh, $40 million. As you prepare to depart, what is the accomplishment you are most proud of in the system? And, and what's something that has been left undone that you, you wish you could have done? Wow. Um, just one accomplishment, huh? <laughs> uh, I think I think what I would probably point to is that we were really able to, I think, remove many obstacles that stand in the way of our students attending school, staying in school, and completing. Um, whether it was our transportation initiatives, um, or, you know, around the, the, the UPASS, whether it was our uh, reducing the cost of books for our students, uh, whether it was providing, um, you know, opportunities uh, for, for students to, you know, to do more, you know, internships, more mentoring opportunities, um, working closely with the, with the leaders of the legislature to ensure that our, our DACA students um, had the same access and financial aid opportunities as, as everybody else to really work hard to try to reduce the equity gap that exists between white and non-white students. Um, I think that our my whole approach, Aaron, was to try to look at what we do through the eyes of the folks that we serve. Um, and that was a reason that I, before COVID hit, traveled all around the state going to every campus multiple times, meeting with students to really understand what their dreams were and what were the obstacles in the way uh, that prevented them from achieving um, those, those dreams. So I think we tried to be bold. I think we tried to be visionary. Um, I think I tried to create um, a, an environment of, of collaboration and of uh, teamwork and to listen to all sides to try to bring people together uh, to con to continue to change the narrative at the state capitol around the value of the 17 institutions within our system you know and i think because we were able to sort of tell our story in a different way i mean i think there was a reason that the governor asked me to lead the effort to um, to reopen all of higher education. Um, I think there was a reason that we were at the table for the governor's workforce council. And many of the recommendations that came from that council included uh, the institutions um, that, that I was uh, honored to lead. Um, and I think there was a reason that I was one of the co-chairs, I was the co-chair, one of the co-chairs of the President's Council of Higher Education in Connecticut. You know, the publics and the privates never met before as a group. 
on, on a consistent basis. And so we tried to change that dynamic because, you know, we all have a different mission, but we all serve uh, the state of Connecticut. And so, you know, that's sort of a long-winded way of saying, I think that what I tried to do was, was learn, was listen, but to lead. When, when you're a leader, you have a lot of difficult decisions that you need to make in good times, never mind in the challenging times that I uh, that I had faced over my past five years in terms of finances, in terms of success rates, um, and in terms of a pandemic. Um, and so I think we, we did an incredible job. I have an incredible team. Um, the faculty and staff on campuses did an incredible job um, of, of educating um, our students, especially in very difficult times like we've been in during the pandemic. He is Marco Jakian, president of the Connecticut State Colleges and Universities System through New Year's Eve. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and enjoy retirement. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And uh, I hope everybody has a great holiday season and stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.